Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley, joined by Peter Kadzis. Peter, how are you doing? All things considered, not bad. Good. In this episode, we are going to do something a little bit different. Instead of a deep dive into one particular topic, Peter and I are going to tackle three subjects with the assistance of our WGBH News colleagues, Soraya Wintersmith, Isaiah Thompson, and Mike Dean. Soraya, who is going to be covering the Iowa caucuses for WGBH, was just in that fair state, sizing up how voters there feel about Elizabeth Warren. Isaiah has been following and driving the story about dysfunction in Boston's Zoning Board of Appeal, and Mike is paying at least as much attention to the continued non-passage of a distracted driving bill on Beacon Hill as any member of the media. You're going to hear from each of them, starting with Soraya Wintersmith, freshly back from Iowa and making her Scrum debut. Howdy. Soraya, this was the first time you were in Iowa, correct? That is correct. My first time. Okay. And you went to one of the most colorful of their political events, the annual political steak fry. Tell us about it. If you can imagine a state fairground with lots of grass and lots of stands and lots of places where you can look at people cooking steak and cast your kernel for the straw poll and watch people on a big stage. That's what it was like. Wait a minute. There's multiple locations where steak is being cooked? Because I always just assume that there was sort of a central clearinghouse for the frying there steak. There was one big grill for grilling steak, even though it's a steak fry. I heard that it used to be a steak and fish fry. And then oh, they eliminated the fish. Okay. So they grill. To be clear, they grill the steaks. They do not fry the steaks. But there's one place. But there are lots of different tents scattered. And everybody kind of goes to their corners. Uh, and in the case of Warren, they had mint green tents uh, just behind the stage. So you could go to different places and get different parts of the event. And how did her presence there compare with other candidates, both in terms of the way that she and her campaign were, you know, presenting her and in terms of the response that she was getting. So Warren didn't enter the water park grounds with all of the flash and flair that we saw some of other candidates enter into. Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, each of them had bands. Cory Booker had a whole line of people chanting his name, and there was a big, long procession. But Warren was absent from that in the morning. Later on, when she went onto the stage, she only talked for about 10 minutes. And then she went to her mint green tent behind the stage. And you could see a line of hundreds of people just waiting for just a second, just a second of handshake and picture interaction to see her. These are the famous selfies the you so and others have written selfies. about. The so-called selfies. Why do you say so-called? Well, her campaign organized everything so that if you or I wanted to take a picture, we wait in a line, we hand off our bags to a campaign person, we hand our phone to another campaign person, and they actually take the picture of us. So it's not me standing next to you and holding up my phone and taking an ussy or a selfie. It is the campaign facilitating a picture for us. Your point is a really good one, and I haven't seen her do this as recently as you did, but I have seen her do it a little bit on the campaign trail, and they've got it down to a science. I mean, it is so methodical and routinized, and people seem to completely go crazy for it. I do think that's interesting. I emailed the campaign afterwards as I was writing my story and said, hey, 
why is this a good use of time? It struck me that her remarks were brief and that she spent so much time taking pictures, but they said that they think it's a way for her to genuinely connect with people. And another person that was caucusing for her said, just look at, look at the line of hundreds of people and tell me that it's not a good strategy. Did you talk to anyone who was fresh off the selfie or the ussy or the themmy, whatever the right <laughs> the, the right term is? Anyone who had just had their picture snapped about why they were willing to wait to do it? I did talk to one man, Brandon Harrison from West Des Moines, who went through the line with another candidate's shirt on, but wanted to get a picture with Warren because she's part of his top three. Uh, I'm trying to figure out who one has the best chance to beat Donald Trump. Um, so I'm still watching the debates and stuff. Uh, Pete just seems like, I don't know, for being the youngest candidate, seems like the most adult on stage. But Warren's got a plan for everything, and I kind of love her for that. I also kind of like Andrew Yang, but those are my top three right now. Okay, so there's an example, obviously, of a voter who was willing to wait in line, but was not completely bewitched by the magic of Warren and the photo op, right? Yeah, Adam, that's the question that I had about investing so much time with the selfie line. You can wait all day to take a picture, but at the end of the day, that is not the same as somebody committed to caucusing for you. But you did talk to people. There was one woman in particular who has declared early for Warren, correct? Amanda Acton, yeah, is from Waukee, Iowa. And she said that it was the first time that she had ever decided to caucus for anybody because normally she goes in undecided. I think that she has the capacity to bring progressive issues and talk about them in a way that really speaks to everybody and affects people that have been too long ignored by the left and the Democratic Party. Uh, I'm talking specifically about rural Iowa, uh, middle class folks, people who are being hurt by Trump's policies, but are also uh, more likely to vote for Trump or, or for, for, for the GOP. I have really liked where she stood on women's rights, reproductive rights, uh, and gun control, and on uh, on policing of black communities, equal justice. I think she's the best way, our best chance to win the White House, and I want to live in her in her America. You and I were chatting a little bit, and I was skeptical about whether or not Iowa voters are as politically savvy as some would insist because of their position as first. Uh, but I think with chatting with Amanda, I really did see that at least the people who commit to caucus ahead of time do have to be very thoughtful and knowledgeable about policy. When you go into a room to caucus and you want to convince somebody who is thinking about which candidate they will line up with, you have to know the policies that will draw them to your side. You also have to speak almost with the same amount of savvy that someone from a campaign might in order to make that pitch. Which I got to say is a level of demandingness. That's, I think, grammatically wrong. But that that's a, a burden to place on supporters of a given candidate that, Peter, it seems to me, goes beyond what we're used to seeing in New Hampshire. Oh, I think it's beyond New Hampshire. I mean, listening to the tape that uh, Soraya brought back, it, it, it's been a gazillion years since I've been out there. There's a, a level of commitment required that is as great as the commitment is in New Hampshire, and as seriously as New 
New Hampshireites may take their responsibility. Um, and I, I, I think that comes through with Amanda. What, what struck me about her is she's a pretty um, uh, progressive, capital P, progressive voter. Um, I would say even by Massachusetts standards, to the left, not far left, but definitely to the left. And just the the day just a day ago, I was reading uh, in the upshot in the New York Times how independent voters are nationally so turned off by many progressive positions, and that it raised the issue of is you know is the Democratic Party going too far to the left? Has it gone too far to the left? And that really means Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren at this point. But it was interesting to, to listen to Amanda, who's, you know, clearly a woman of the people, self-conscious, but very sophisticated. But it, it just said to me, there's a real world of difference between reading something you know, authoritative in the New York Times, which I completely believe, but then also listening to a, a, a person out in Iowa. And since, you know, I don't have any plans of going out there, I, but I do remember that, that, you know, when you're meeting the people one-on-one, whether you're a candidate, whether you're a reporter, whether you're a cameraman, a sound person, you see that extra dimension, the possibility that is there that just doesn't come across in a newspaper or on a screen. So before we let you go, did you come away from your trip to Iowa more or less bullish on Warren's prospects out there than when you left? I would say less because in listening to Amanda's assessment of what could hurt Warren, she specifically mentioned hearing people say that they have qualms about a lack of a specific health care plan. We know that Warren has wiggled about Medicare for all, but I don't think that she's pointed to a specific bill that she likes or outlined a specific timeline. She said that she wants certain things, but as far as a specific plan that would offer people on the fence a kind of assurance, I haven't seen that yet. And and what I found so interesting and, frankly, so convincing from Amanda on that point is this is a Warren supporter. And I think that showed two things. One, her sophistication that she's a supporter of Warren, but she can see uh, a chink in the armor. Um, I guess I didn't see two things. I saw one thing. (laughs) But we'll leave it at that. Uh, Soraya, thank you for coming down to chat with us. This was fun. Thank you for the opportunity. It was great. Now on to Isaiah Thompson, who I have to point out broke the story of the apparently legal but highly questionable way that former Boston Zoning Board of Appeal member Craig Galvin blurred the lines between his role on the ZBA and his day job as a realtor. Isaiah, for anyone who might have missed it, what exactly was Galvin doing? What I found was that there were actually... 
numerous examples over a few years where, uh, and the timelines are important here, but where properties or properties owners, developers came before the ZBA asking for zoning variances. That sounds kind of wonkish to some maybe, but what that means is that you you get permission to do work that would otherwise be illegal. That might be chopping a, a house into... Uh, changing a two-family into a, a three-unit condo building. It might be constructing a brand-new building. And you can construct them in a way that also is going to let you make more money, right? You yeah. get a variance, and you can make more. That's right. And, very, and, and especially in this white-hot real estate market in Boston, that's why uh, this zoning variance, this blessing by the ZBA, the Zoning Board of Appeal, can be you know literally worth millions of dollars. So there were numerous examples of properties that received these zoning variances from the ZBA, uh, including Galvin's vote. Now, in almost all of these cases, he voted with uh, a unanimous board. And, and then somewhat later, and when I say later, sometimes uh, less than two years later, sometimes less than one year later, Galvin, who is a private real estate broker, that's no secret, um, you know, was the listed agent for the sale of those properties. Um, and that happened a number of times over the years. So you didn't find any indication, for example, that there was a understanding that he would provide a yes vote in exchange for the right to list later on. It's just more, this shows how awkward the current system is when it comes to people who have an invested, when it comes to people who have a vested interest in some of these projects advancing, being the ones who are called upon to say whether they get the green light or not. Yeah. And I mean, we should make it clear, Galvin has been accused of no wrongdoing. And my article did not find or imply that he had done anything wrong. And I think what you're pointing to is exactly right. There is this kind of built in uh, tension, especially on the, so the Zoning Board of Appeals is a, is a kind of strange entity. The way it's constructed is spelled out in state law, even though it's a city body. And the state law says, so the mayor appoints the members, but he can only appoint, they, they are nominated by these different groups that are spelled out in state law, one of which is the Greater Boston Real Estate Board. They nominated Craig Galvin, a, a real estate broker, and Mayor Walsh appointed him. So there's almost kind of a spot for you could call it the real estate industry, I suppose, on this board. Um, so it was almost sort of part of the design that there, it makes sense in a way that the real estate industry is represented on a board that has such an impact on real estate in the city. But there is this tension because you have, in the case of Galvin, someone whose entire livelihood is to uh, broker the sale of properties, and those included properties that he was voting on on the ZBA. Yeah, I'm, I mean, it's a, a classic inside Boston deal. Um, you know, there's a—listeners may be aware of the, the old Chicago saying— uh, supposed saying, we don't want nobody that nobody sent. You know, that's essentially the way the city of Boston runs. Um, and, and the Zoning Board of Appeals is a, a rather arcane body in that 
I think the figure may be as high as 50% of all projects need some sort of zoning variance, which raises the question, why the heck have, have zoning? I mean, I know in my neighborhood, in Jamaica Plain, every time I've gone to a meeting, which is only a few, um, meetings about zoning boards, uh, uh, zoning variances, we always hear back from the city, well, it's zoned for that, so you have to let it through. So when a bunch of schmoes show up, it's it's zoned for it. But I, I, I guess if, if you're a non-schmo or you're connected, then you get to go before the zoning board of appeals. That is probably, by the way, wildly unfair. But I'm willing to bet that that's the way most residents of the city of Boston who've had any truck with the ZBA may feel about it. So what happens next? I mean, the, the city council's about to get involved with this, aren't they? Yeah, so there's sort of been uh, an increasing drum roll um, for action here. By the way, including from Mayor Walsh, who's hired an independent, or I'm sorry, commissioned an independent investigation of how the ZBA does business. I've gotten a couple statements from the mayor uh, when I was working on that article. Uh, the mayor said something to the effect of, you know, an investigation is underway, but we will, there will be absolutely no opportunity for uh, a quote insider lane or something like that that. And he made a similar statement um, to me recently. And then on the city council, there are a few people calling from reform. Council President Andrea Campbell has suggested um, creating a new position of a, a city inspector general, not just related to this, but it clearly came out of concern over uh, over this scandal. Um, and then most recently, uh, city councilor Lydia Edwards came out. She is, as we're recording, uh, about to put down a proposal, this would be a home rule petition, to really radically restructure uh, the ZBA. And I, I talked to her about it a little bit. And, you know, she sort of, she was less interested in pointing fingers or making accusations than in making the point that this sort of tension, this is is built into the system as it is now. And she doesn't think that there should be people making these decisions that have a vested interest, a potential vested interest in the outcome of those decisions. It does not mean we shouldn't have a perspective from those industries. The question is whether that person should be actively involved in making money in that industry right now and also on the ZBA. So Edwards is proposing sort of totally reorganizing who sits on this board and and who they represent. So Edwards wants to see, um, you know, essentially more people from the affordable housing advocacy community, somebody from there on the board, you know, people who she thinks um, are going to have a very different take on what developers want and when they should get it <laughs> when they come before this body. Um, you know, how likely is this to, to happen? Who knows? Home rule petitions are, you know, generally go to Beacon Hill to die. Um, and whether the mayor is behind it isn't totally clear. Mayor Walsh sent me a statement saying that he welcomes the collaboration of uh, Councillor Edwards. Does that mean he supports her petition? I don't well, know. Well, what does that mean? Well, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I, I, I think that the mayor I think that the mayor wants to see um, change on the ZBA. And I think that the mayor I, I'm speculating a little bit. But what I read in the mayor's statements is that he feels 
blindsided by some of the things that have come out of this, and he doesn't want this happening under his nose either. Now, whether he envisions the same corrective measures, uh, that's pretty hard to say. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the 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 mayor is in in the mayor is in many ways an aggrieved party. This whole ZBA scandal revolves around people who are, to varying degrees, close with him um, or his organization, and they've let him down. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. The future of this, I mean, remember in Harry Potter, the sorting hat? You really need the sorting hat to figure it out. The mayor welcomes it, but um, does that mean he'll actively work for it? Don't know. Will he actively oppose it? Don't know. Look, I hate to be Binky, the voice of doom, but it's a a role I play pretty well. Um, Because this has to go through the legislature, you know, the 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 big, literally the big real estate interests, as well as the small real estate interests, will get a cut at this. Um, That doesn't mean reform is impossible, but. What it says to me is, don't look for relief anytime soon. I mean, look, Governor uh, Baker has had a a very modest or modest, if you're to reasonable, plan for housing reform. And, you know, that's like, uh, you know, a polar bear on an ice floe. In the Arctic has a better chance of maneuverability than the governor's housing plan. So, um, and I'll tell you, the real estate interests on Beacon Hill are um, formidable. So I'm not so sure what will happen. Isaiah, you've been nodding. Yeah, I mean, I think that another potential approach, at least to this local issue of, of, of the zoning board, but that has such a huge and such a just monetarily large impact on things. Another approach, possible approach to this is that if you've ever watched a zoning board meeting, which I really hadn't until I started reporting on this and then watched a whole bunch of them, um, it is an obtuse, obscure, weird, arcane, Byzantine, subterranean process. And it is by no means, I mean, it's sort of a struggle to figure out what's on the agenda, let alone how decisions are being made. Could we say Kafkaesque? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) And, um, you know, it's really difficult to know uh, why uh, the board votes a certain way on a certain issue. It's not like they issue, you know, these elaborate written opinions or something, right? And, and, it's kind of a, a a black hole of knowledge. And and I think that what even, you know, whether the board is restructured or not, I think there are measures just in terms of transparency of decision making to the public that could really, I think, you know, shed some light on the processes that are going on. And that does give the public and public officials a better opportunity to sort of weigh in on how they should be going when they're going right, when they're not. All right. Isaiah Thompson, good to talk to you as always. Thanks. And finally, last but by no means least, WGBH's State House correspondent Mike Dean, who is calling in from our subterranean State House studio. Hey, Mike. <laughs> it might be least. That, that remains to be seen. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 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 Mike, as you've reported, the legislature is at an impasse with the so-called hands-free driving bill. It's taken 14 years 
to get this far. Am I right about that 14 years? Yeah, thereabouts. It's been filed uh, many, many times. Oh, okay. Uh, For the sake of argument, we'll say 14 years. Meanwhile, every other New England state has adopted some form of this legislation. What in Blaze's name is going on? Yeah, lawmakers have not passed this bill yet, even though the House and Senate have basically agreed to uh, the the ban on having a phone behind the wheel. What those other states don't have is really any kind of provision to uh, address the issue of racial profiling. The thinking here goes uh, that if we are giving police another authority to pull over drivers, in this case, if you're spotted with your phone, you can get pulled over. It goes the same way as, you know— um, uh, you know, seatbelts or texting while driving that ban from a, a few years ago, things like that. Anything that empowered the police to this level could exacerbate the uh, what some see as the existing racial profiling problem with police traffic stops. So one thing that the Senate definitely wants to get done in this uh, in this bill is some kind of data access or something that leads to a study of police stop data where organizations, institutions, whoever could take a look at this public data and say, you know, town X pulls over black and Latino drivers more often than than town Y or more than the proportion of the population, things like that, to draw those types of conclusions to let it out in the daylight. Um, so that is whether they're hung up with right now, the House and the Senate. They're in conference committee. That should be the absolute final step of the legislative process where they hammer out a compromise bill. Both chambers then pass that compromise bill and it goes on to the governor, a governor, I should say, who very much wants to sign this ban on cell phones. Uh, but for that uh, hang up over the racial profiling element is why it hasn't got there. But what do the advocates say? And, and the advocates are people who have family members who have died or been injured, uh, in many cases seriously, as a result of uh, people driving while texting or talking on the cell phones. What are the advocates doing at this point? They are now saying that the House and Senate should compromise on what level of data uh, gets redacted versus is made public, what kind of aggregate data could be available to the public while individual uh, things about you know locations and race and gender uh, for these stops is protected uh, and kept under wraps by the state. This is all because the House's position is that giving up this data to the public could be a violation of driver's privacy or could lead to some kind of, uh, you know, a, a hacker taking this database and, uh, you know, mining it as for private data in some way or another. So uh, I, the, the advocates who have been fighting, like you said, for 14 years now are trying to find their own compromise and propose their own compromise between these kind of warring branches. Well, Mike, it occurs to me when you talk about the possible downside of full disclosure, it occurs to me that it's also something that could make law enforcement in different towns look less than great, right? That's absolutely an undercurrent that uh, has kind of shaded this whole debate here is, well, if we make this all public, what are we going to see? And I think if you are the ACLU, if you are kind of advocates for public information and someone who wants to see the truth about if there is an unconscious or, or you know racial bias in these traffic police stops in certain towns, in certain areas, um, you could turn out, like I said, with Town X having a very different uh, you know, record on police stops than town wide. And that's and bad PR. And also potentially, absolutely. I would imagine, there's the possibility of legal action, right? 
It's bad PR for those individual police departments. Uh, it's tough to explain. I think in maybe some scenarios you could have um, one officer, you know, in a department being responsible for some of the, uh, you know, less scrupulous or, or frankly more racist stopping actions um, than you would in, of an entire department. But it could be a headache for uh, town officials, for police departments especially. And uh, so how this data is dealt with in the aggregate, how it is studied and the fact that it needs to be um, very judiciously studied is something that's factoring into these conversations. All right. So final question for you. You have seen bills over which there was a great deal of agonizing, go into conference committee, stew there for a long time, then finally get passed. You've seen legislation whisked through the legislature when, uh, especially I would say there's something in the news that is troubling that prompts the legislature to act quickly. You've also seen bills go to conference committee to die. I'm curious about what you think is going to happen here if you had to venture a prediction. You're absolutely right. I think those three scenarios you laid out are completely accurate for how most things are are dealt with here. Uh, And it is difficult to say. I think that um, one thing that is changing is public pressure. More and more news stories like, you know, we on WGBH have been doing over and over again is saying that lawmakers can't get this done. Lawmakers can't compromise. Somebody's got to give. And whether that means, you know, both parties give towards the middle or one party kind of gives up to fight another day or, or something breaks. I think that right now there is dedication to getting something done. Uh, it would be egg on the face of Speaker DeLeo and Senate President Spilka if this thing fails at this po- portion of uh, this point of the session. We still have uh, several months left of the, this legislative session. If they can't get it done, uh, it, it really just looks real pretty pathetic given that it isn't even the uh, the meat of the bill. It, it, it's a uh, it's an underlying concept contained within the bill. All right, Mike Dean, thank you for making time. Good to talk to you. Great to talk to you guys. And that is going to do it for another installment of the Scrum. Peter Kadzis, any deep thoughts before we go? Uh, no deep thoughts. The handheld bill is a typical um, Beacon Hill screw-up, a screw-up by not being able to get something done. And um, I, I suspect that it's... This concern about privacy is pretty thin. That it's a it's a cover for um, local police who don't want to be troubled with this. I think it's pretty simple. Uh, it, it's also a concern that you've got the ACLU on one side, you have the police on the other, and in Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont, those are not racially diverse states. That's um, a good point. Uh, Rhode Island and Connecticut have it, but they adopted the bills in the first place. But the, the, the beauty of Massachusetts politics, if you don't do anything for so long, it's, you know, the, the, it, 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 it's not getting stuff done is what's normal on Beacon Hill. All right. On that downbeat note, that's going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Big thanks to Soraya Wintersmith, Isaiah Thompson, and Mike Dean, and to you for taking the time to listen. You should, of course, subscribe to The Scrum, review us if you haven't, and let us know if you have any thoughts about what you just heard. Peter and I are on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. He is at Kadzis. We can also be reached by email at scrum at wgbh.org. Our engineer today was Dave Goodman. We get vital production help from him, Andrew Maswa, John Parker, and Gary Mott. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.